0: Hello DIY Audio Enthusiasts, welcome to the sixth DIY Recording Equipment Podcast. It is the end, almost the end of 2012, and today we're going to go back to something we started back in May. When I asked for your questions For the everything you always Wanted to know about audio Electronics but were afraid To ask podcast We got a ton of questions uh, Too many in fact for one Podcast so we did the first Session back in uh, June we being uh, Me and uh, A really wonderful Contributing expert named Duncan Gray um, And I I'm really excited and honestly just humbled and appreciative to have Duncan back here. It's really amazing to have someone with his expertise and his way of explaining things um, donate his time to answer our newbie electronics questions. So uh, without much further ado, let's get to the questions. We're going to talk a lot about uh, troubleshooting today, about safety when working on circuits. We're going to also get to some really fabulous stuff about choosing capacitors and some more meta stuff about the connection between acoustics and electronics, between sound and voltage. Some stuff that just really blew my mind and that I'm really excited to share with you. Um, So take a listen. Here we go. Hey, Duncan. How you doing? Hey, Peterson. I'm doing fine. Do you have a good Christmas? I did. It was great. How about you? It was really nice. We hardly did anything. <laughs> That's nice. I take it it wasn't white down there in Texas?
1: Actually, we got a very rare uh, white Christmas. It snowed the day of Christmas, and it was beautiful. We went out for a, a Midwestern snow walk and just had a great time.
0: Really? Are you a, are you a Midwestern guy by origin?
1: No, I grew up near Washington, D.C., so we had essentially nor'easters, plenty of snow, and I was used to it. So, Wow,
0: that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, we barely had anything up here. Um, so let's jump in. Um, John wants to know, what troubleshooting process do you recommend when your PC-based project isn't working?
1: Okay, uh, I always start at the beginning, uh, walk over to the input, put the scope on the input, and make sure that the signal's there. Just check the really simple stuff first. Um, I like to make dumb mistakes instead of subtle mistakes because they're much easier to fix. Mm. So you just walk to the front, make sure that there's an input, and then follow the signal all the way through. Now, before you even do that, you definitely want to make sure that power is good. So get the voltmeter on the power supply rails. Make sure they're up and running. Um, It'll speak to what you do when you do uh, the the first bring-up of a circuit. We'll talk about that in a while, I think. Okay. But um, assuming it's already passed the smoke test and is up and running, um, uh, you can approach it from the beginning or you can approach it from the end. I like to go actually from the end first uh, uh, after I've checked the input, Uh, walk out to the end, see if it's slammed up against the rail, see if it's just stuck at ground. Go back a stage, back a stage, back a stage, until you find where that one boundary is, where it's working versus not working. Mm. A lot of times it'll be the bias on a transistor that went bad, or the power to an amplifier that just isn't hooked up right. You'll find a cold solder joint that way, and it's usually the simple things that are the problem, uh, solder joints or components that are the wrong value, that kind of stuff. Um, just a simple walkthrough is what you do. So you have to really know a little bit about circuits, how to interpret the schematic diagram, so that you can look at the schematic diagram to find where the signal is and um, put the probe on the right spot on the circuit board when you have the board in front of yeah. you.
0: Yeah, okay, great. Now, there are a couple terms in there that I, I hadn't heard before. Uh, bring up, smoke test... And you said slamming against the rails. Could you explain what those mean?
1: Sure. Um, start with the, the last one. Uh, slammed against the rails means that an output or any intermediate stage is stuck at a power supply. Um, if you look at uh, op-amp data sheets, they usually spec that their output can only go to some distance from the rails, no matter how hard they drive. So a really good clue is to look at just how close the output is to the power supply rail if it's slammed against the rail. Um, If it's beyond what the output can drive, then you know that somebody's pushing current into that node. And if it's just a a little bit away from the rail, then probably the preceding stage is trying to ask the op amp to do a little too much. Slammed against the rails is a good sign that bias went bad or sometimes that uh, the opposite uh, power supply didn 't get hooked up, so if it 's stuck against uh, plus eighteen if you got eighteen volt rails stuck against plus eighteen, it could be that the minus eighteen didn 't get hooked up and so okay
0: forth. Um, and how about bring up and smoke test
1: right um, when you first get the the new circuit out of the box and you want to bring it up. Uh from scratch for the first time, that's what bring up is all about. Bring up is the overall word for the whole long process of going from not ever having put power on it to it's working and you're recording okay, with it. Okay, gotcha. So um uh the very first thing you do is just measure power supply rails from from the plus minus sixteen, plus minus fifteen, plus minus eighteen to ground. And between each other. And if anybody shows less than about one ohm, you know, when you hook up leads and just hook them to each other, they're anywhere from 0.2 to 0.5 ohms on the meter. Use that and, and subtract it from what you measure. And so if what you see is this super low resistance from rail to ground or rail to rail, then you know you've got a problem. So after you've got that and you, you're you reading anywhere from one, I've seen them go up to tens of k ohms because it's voltage uh, of diodes that makes it look like high impedance to ground, the high impedance is is pretty good at the other end. Ten megs on a power supply is too much so bring up uh that 's the first stage is just checking power supply rails and then you have to be brave and apply power and If the smoke doesn't come out, you know you've got a success uh, um, smoke test or flame on or you know smoke test or flame on whatever you want to call it um Uh, Flame on. (laughs) There's an old joke that circuits work because of the smoke that's stuck in them. And if you ever let the smoke out, they stop working. Oh,
0: (laughs) okay. Great. Okay. So the smoke test, that makes sense. Okay, so just going back a little bit and really breaking down what you're talking about, because I think this is a really important, um, great test, before you even plug it in. Because if you have built this thing and spent a few hundred dollars on the parts, you might not want to plug it in before you know... A couple things about how it's working. So you were talking about testing the resistance from the power rails to ground. Um, That means putting your black multimeter test probe somewhere at ground. That could be um, an XLR input pin, or it could be um, a lot of PCBs have a ground pad. Um, And then putting the other, the red probe, probably at one of the op-amp pins where you know it's supposed to get power and making sure that there's not a short between those two.
1: Well, yeah, the op-amp power pin is a good spot. Sometimes op-amps, though, have a little series resistance to reduce noise. They make a filter from where the the cold hard rail, um, the copper wire that connects to that backplane power connection. Sometimes I've seen anywhere from a couple of ohms to 50 ohms of series resistance with a nice 0.1 mic film capacitor to ground to make a filter, and that'll fool you into believing that the power rails are all good. So you really should do it right at the connector on uh, on the card edge. Uh, the 500 series, uh, seems to me, has those card edge connectors, and you go... You know, look at the pin number for plus 16, look at the pin number for, I think there's a 12 sure. in there, okay, too. so it's
0: best to go right where the power is entering the board. Right. Okay, okay, great. And now, a scope is obviously a great tool, and if you're getting deeper into circuits, it's a very necessary tool, but it's... It's not something most of us have around that are just getting into this or even have done a few projects because they're, they're often prohibitively expensive. It, how much of this can you do without a scope?
1: 100% can be done without the scope. Uh, DC really gives you more insight for bring-up than anything else. You put the, the, just the resistance meter on the power rails, like I described, That sure doesn't need a scope. And then once you uh, have powered it up, if you still have problems, you walk through with just the voltmeter. Lots of schematics have their bias operating points printed on the schematic, and it'll say, you know, 3.7 volts DC, and it's printed on the schematic. And you just walk through the circuit looking at the schematic to see what it should be. And sometimes the schematic is really accurate within a uh, percent. Sometimes it's as much as 10% off. Old tube circuits can be 20, even 30% off on some of those bias nodes. But um, uh, it's all about the DC voltmeter. And then finally, when it's time to work AC, um, by putting a, a, some kind of signal source into it, even just music from your audio, uh, a sound card, if you're using that to drive it, you'll see that as AC um, with the AC voltmeter, and once again, it shouldn't be too much and it shouldn't be too little. Once you got the AC on, if you've got uh, you know seven, eight, nine volts RMS on the AC voltmeter showing, you, th- that's a sign that maybe there's too much gain or a feedback resistor is missing or something. It should be pretty well constrained to a volt or less.
0: Right, well, it will in between a volt, two volts, would is is about uh, kind of line-level audio, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's line-level. A microphone will see 50 to 100 millivolts while you're talking. Um, you just ha- you get a sense of how much uh, output each of these different devices has. Um, I've used a guitar to debug before and, and been able to see a, a little bit of voltage out the uh, guitar jack. Yeah,
0: and that's what a lot of it is about. Unfortunately, this isn't a very satisfying answer, but a lot of it is about intuition. And, and Duncan said some great uh, some great step-by-step things you can do, um, but a lot of it is kind of learning how circuits tick and and uh, checking for where you think maybe there's too much resistance or too much DC. That's the kind of thing that, that you learn from doing this over and over again. I was just reading uh, right. a wonderful data sheet from the late, great uh, Jim Williams of, um, he was at uh, Linear Technology at the time. And he says something like, there is no greater electronics teacher than a broken, well-designed circuit. And I I thought that was just, that was just great.
1: I've learned a big part of what I know from Jim Williams and reading his articles all along. I was in California living just a couple of miles from where he worked. Oh, wow.
0: Really interesting, amazing guy. Okay, let's go to uh, a great question from Darren. What audible impact does input or output impedance have on connected equipment? The effect it has on the amount of voltage transferred is clear. However, a more comprehensive explanation on how impedance can alter the sound of interfaced equipment would be hugely appreciated. I wonder if we could say just real quickly, what is impedance? Just to, to review... Right. Impedance is how much load resistance
1: there is between any two terminals. So if I put 1 volt on 1,000 ohms, I get 1 milliamp to flow. And if I put 1 volt on 10 ohms, I get 10 milliamps to flow. Higher current is uh, therefore caused by lower impedance. And if I have an input impedance of 1 megaohm, that 1 million ohms prevents current from flowing and gives you some flexibilities when you're working on things, actually, if you have a super high input impedance. Lots, lots of pro audio. It sits around 2K as the input impedance. Sometimes they put it at 600 ohms. And it, it does color uh, the sound when you have an interconnect between two pieces of equipment. So here's what happens. The coax cable that you use for uh, unbalanced or mic cable to do balanced hookup, the way they're constructed, it's unavoidable. There's a little capacitance between each of the wires and ground in that cable. And if the source impedance is too high, then that capacitance will filter the sound. Usually it pulls off high frequency tones. It makes a a, a low-pass filter. Mm -hmm. so the low impedance drive of pro audio uh, outputs really is designed to fix that problem if you got a super long snake in uh, uh, some kind of venue you're setting up then you really have to know your impedance and it has to be matched there's just no question about it Mm -hmm. when you're on short distances under 12 feet it matters much less unless you're really into that precise sound Um, At high frequencies, if you're doing nature recording where, you know, the sound of a a buzzing insect is relevant and you really have to watch out for the high frequencies, then you want to to look out for impedance. So in general, the rule is uh, match the impedances. And then the good news is that we're all taken care of. You go out and get uh, the transformer box to go from low to high, high to low. It's a DI box. It's a line in box with whatever kind you need passive or active. It, it Now you're into personal preference. Just go get the matching box. Don't try to get by unless you know that it really doesn't matter. I've, I've hooked up a piezo input straight to my mixing desk from time to time, and it doesn't sound that bad, but I also have to equalize the daylights out of it to make it sound
0: right. Right. Impedance is important enough that a lot of us spend a lot of time and money on developing boxes that their only job really is to is to change impedance um and one of the for one of the reasons that you mentioned is the um the frequency the filters that can be created um, by impedance interacting with capacitance another reason is that um as you said a lot of passive devices have a high output impedance meaning they can't give you much current and where impedance really gets interesting with sound is where those passive devices interact with a load impedance. for example, a dynamic microphone interacting with a mic preamp input. Um, and there are, there are numerous mods, for example, to the SM57 that change that control the input impedance of the next stage, because the way you load the microphone changes how the the electromagnetic system of the dynamic microphone behaves um so it it can have a profound effect on sound and it can have um a very negligible effect on sound right and
1: and then to close it out what you just mentioned about the mic mods and just the right transformer at the input of a mic pre now you're into the very subtle version of the effects where uh Lots of pros will only use one model of microphone with one model of preamp because the matching of the two i should say the pairing of the two gives them just the tone that they like it's it It's changed the frequency response to be sure, but in subtle ways because of some low frequency roll off low frequency bump um, all the different things that happen with the matching of a transformer against the uh, microphone
0: exactly. Uh, My friend Eric Gaskell who teaches an audio electronics class at McGill in Montreal said to me once He thinks a, a large part of what we consider the sound of mic preamps is just what their input impedance happens to be And the nature of that impedance It's an interesting thought Yeah, it's true, I agree Capacitors have been causing me headaches for a while now. In pedals, uh, guitar pedals, tone circuits for guitars, audio paths for pre's, and so on, it always seems like folks go the extra mile to use film caps. Why? Isn't a cap a cap a cap? Putting aside electrolytics for the moment, and voltage limits, why would anyone use one style, ceramic, mica, polyester, polypropylene, Uh, over another for audio purposes? Uh, Great question and one that I have often wondered about myself.
1: Yeah, this is one that you learn pretty early. And I started my capacitor lessons uh, not in audio, but in um, power control and temperature control, where a capacitor uh, is used to make voltage rampers. And capacitors are not capacitors. <laughs> Basically, to start with, a, uh, a ceramic capacitor is nonlinear. It has hysteresis, just like um, ferrites. It's for the electrical version of what ferrites do. They store energy in the little crystals of the really? ceramic. And so you go one way, and it, it, it modifies the crystal shape. And then you come back the other way in voltage, and it modifies it back the other way around, just like ferrite. So you'll get non-liter distortion. It's much, much less than ferrite, but it's there. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, another thing that happens with ceramics is that as the voltage across the ceramic material goes up, the capacitance goes down. And the the worst offender for this is a very particular formula of ceramic called um, Z5U, where you can get a 10 to 1 capacitance reduction at rated voltage of the capacitor. Jeez. You really don't want that. That's That becomes nonlinear distortion in a, in a big way. That you can hear. You would avoid ceramics in the audio path then? I would avoid ceramics in in the audio path just... Just like the plague. They're horrible. <laughs> wow. Okay. So once you get over to films, now you get in into where you can have arguments and, you know, go down to the pub and say, I hear the difference. And another person <laughs> says, no, you can't hear the difference. The, I'd love to see that pub. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I used to go to that pub when I was working at DigiDesign. Oh, but, okay. But um, the... Um, so, here's, here's the film capacitor catalog. You start with polyester. It's the cheapest and it's the worst, but it's really, really good, certainly compared to ceramic. Um, where it falls down is in a very particular noise spec, where it's just a little bit worse noise than all of the other technologies. That's about it. Next up is... Um, poly there's a polysulfone or poly um uh it's got sulfur in the name of the plastic you can get those oh. at digikey those are the next up they're pretty good and they're available and it's a kind of plastic that industry likes to use cuz it doesn't melt um most people know that you want to get polypropylene or polystyrene as the absolute best for audio polystyrene just can't be beat that particular plastic is the lowest loss it's the lowest noise it doesn't have any nonlinear distortion. It has hardly any microphonics in it. It's another problem with capacitors in general, especially wound film, is that if you tap on them, they will convert the voltage stored on the capacitor into an electric current, and it's called microphonics. You can hear tapping on some capacitors, and and films do that. So so like I say, polystyrene is the king of them, king of them all. Polypropylene was a little bit cheaper. They're most available now if you find a, a poly cap and this uh, poly sulfur type of cap is the one that's most available now in the industry. Uh, something to avoid also is, is called a stacked film capacitor. They tend to break down more often. They just plain punch through and, and turn into a short circuit. So I stay away from stacked film the technology of making a pa- capacitor is to get as much surface area as you can. And one way to do that is to just take two plates and two pieces of plastic and roll them like a sleeping bag. And that provides the best construction for an audio cap. It, it never breaks down. It uh, doesn't suffer microphonics. Okay. So the film caps are the best, but they don't have much uh, uh, storage density, it's called where the aluminums do. When you just need to filter a power supply, you can't beat an aluminum. And nowadays, especially Panasonic, is the best at it. They're super low noise anymore. And um, you can safely use them in an audio path. Put them on the emitter of a, of a transistor and not run into noise problems. Use them to block the DC input of uh, some very low impedance input systems. Um, don't be too scared of aluminum. They're better than ceramic. For noise and distortion.
0: Okay, so so the thing with the film caps is so what you're saying is they just don't get that high in terms of value, right? So you need you need to switch to electrolytics at some point if you're going into the um, I don't know. Are we talking tens or hundreds of microfarads or?
1: Yeah, the boundary line is about ten microfarads. I've seen film capacitors at ten microfarads, but they're an inch on a side. If you can afford yeah. the space, and I do plenty of times, I'll put a, a film over an aluminum. There's there's always lower noise, always lower leakage than aluminum. But this boundary line of ten microfarads and above, once you're into you know ten thousand, a hundred thousand microfarads to filter the supply of a power amp, the aluminum is, you have to use an aluminum.
0: Yeah. Okay. And what? where does MICA fit in there?
1: Oh, MICA. Yes, good point. They are, um, really, they're no better than any of the film capacitors for the things that audio folks like. MICA's real claim to fame is that they don't drift versus temperature. So if you need to make an oscillator or a filter, that ju- you don't want the filter 3 dB point to move the resonant point of the filter. Use a mica capacitor if you can afford something that low. They are the lowest density of all. You get up to about a, a nanofarad, you know, um, a thousand picofarads, and that's where they stop being efficient. They get too big and unwieldy.
0: I see. Okay, great. Well, that's a great rundown, certainly something I will be referring to uh, in the future. Okay, John would like to know, what parts are most or least susceptible to heat damage from soldering? Right. The the the
1: thing that gets damaged most often is actually the plastic more than anything else. A lot of people might think that it's the silicon, but silicon is pretty rugged. Um so what you watch out for is things like film capacitors and connectors. Um I was just working on a a board uh, soldering some, some ground plane onto it and overheated it and delaminated the printed circuit board. Um, yeah. So when I, uh, solder, especially things like my, my precious old film capacitors, new old stock polystyrene caps, um, I use this great trick I learned a long time ago, go out and get some, um, I think the the surgeons call them clamps. They're those ratcheting needle nose pliers that use in surgery to hold things together. And you put one of these guys clamped onto the lead between the soldering iron and the body of the cap. And it sucks all the heat away and keeps the cap from melting. Uh, you can use that on old, you know, super old germanium transistors, their legs. Those old germanium transistors are delicate. They use epoxy to hold the, uh, the guts inside, and the epoxy can get a little too hot and burn. Um, that's really the kind of stuff to wor- worry about. And uh, so the best way to prevent burning is that when you heat up the solder so that it gets to liquid... You just watch for it. You get to learn, once again, you you just intuition, (laughs) you learn what it's like to solder. And as soon as that stuff has melted, plus a few seconds for it to flow well, then you pull the soldering iron off and you never touch it again. Another real good way to prevent problems is do it right with the first touch of the soldering iron and never have to go back again. Retouch with a soldering iron is is just as as much damage for anything uh, as, as I can think of.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip. I'd never thought of that before. So it's just a little um, aluminum clip, and it's basically acting like a heat sink? Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, mine are stainless steel. They're those surgical steel uh, clamps that I use. I got them a long time ago for for other stuff, but uh, um, you can get them from any surgical supply store, and I'm pretty sure DigiKey sells them and Jameco and all the other guys.
0: Yeah, and Radio Shack has little... They're basically... Kind of like test lead clips, if I'm thinking of it, the right kind of thing. But it seems like anything metal you could clip onto there would would take some of the heat off. Yeah,
1: there are these there are these smaller ones made specifically as heat sinks. Um, they don't pull as much heat away as these bigger things. And and the DIY community uses a lot of really much bigger components than industry does. And those little clips that you buy from Radio Shack are. Pulled from industry, modern day industry, where you're trying to heat sink the really small components. Mm. So I go out and get these bigger things from um, uh, various uh, surgical supplies, or uh, like I said, DigiKey has them. I, I'll see if I can send you a reference to that.
0: Yeah, Peterson. great tip. Well, I will. I will. We'll find a link and we'll we'll put it up there with the podcast, so you can you listening at home can can look for the link attached to this podcast. So. Okay, great. Um, Jay Smith, great question about troubleshooting and safety. What do you think the top five safety rules are when building audio gear, whether tube or solid state?
1: Right. Um, For safety, there's... Well, first, there's two aspects. There's protecting yourself and there's protecting the circuit. Um, I'll start with protecting yourself. And another old saying to keep in your mind at all times it's volts that jolt jolts but mills that kills the amount of current through your body that it takes to kill you is 1 milliamp and the average low impedance of a human is 10 k ohms back to basics v equals i r to get to 1 milliamp on 10 k ohms takes um 10 volts Now, nobody ever died at 10 volts, and in fact, uh, the International Standards Organization calls 40 volts the threshold of where you have to start worrying about uh, people being killed. And the reason for that discrepancy is that, yes, the lowest I can get to if I really hold on tight is 10k ohms, Um. dry skin is 10 megohms, and if I'm just a little bit sweaty, it's 100k. It's a huge range is the point
0: Mm -hmm.
1: for human skin. 40 volts is kind of the threshold. So, if you're working on tube amps that can definitely kill you real fast, no matter how dry your skin is, um, the, the first rule that I learned for high voltage is the one-hand rule. Keep one hand in your back pocket. What kills us is current flow that goes from one hand to the other through the heart, or uh, from your hand through your feet to earth. And so, if you're in an environment that has a good earth under your feet, make sure you're wearing rubber sole shoes. Um, something that not many people realize is that a really good earth connection is bare feet to to bare concrete. Concretes, uh actually, it's good to use bare concrete as the floor in an electrostatic protective environment because it's low enough impedance that it prevents buildup. So these are the things to just know from circuit point of view. The one hand rule keeps your... Your one hand from touching the circuit and making a path to ground, that one hand rule. And then, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't take it lightly and I'm, I put on shoes and make sure that uh, uh, I don't have any chains that I'm wearing, all that kind of stuff to prevent any kind of accidental path um, from connecting electricity through me. So there's okay. the scary part. And then the next thing to protect, of course, is the circuit. The circuit is mostly sensitive to pretty low voltages. It, it's surprising what it takes to how little it takes to to really hurt uh, a silicon junction. So once again, it's mostly accidents uh, that that do that. If you've got a chain um, uh, a chain necklace, chain around your wrist, you might want to take them off. Um, take off your ring if you're really going to be digging into the chassis of a of an amplifier um although you shouldn't be digging into the chassis if it's a tube amp yes uh and and so so that's one aspect and the other is is kind of the one that i still mess up with is the ground lead of an oscilloscope or the ground lead of your voltmeter when it drags across a circuit by accident, it will bridge between the two things that cause the most damage. It's Murphy's Law. Yeah. So be really careful with straight leads from just the test equipment that you're using to probe the circuit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good one to, to note, especially after our previous conversation about sticking leads in there. Is that, you know, make sure you're not using the lead to bridge to... Uh, two components that shouldn't be touching each other. So finally in our more kind of general discussion before we get to some really uh, over my head specific stuff, uh, we have a great question from Grant that sums a lot of this up. Um, Grant wants to know, can you clarify and explain the correlation between audio frequencies and amplitude and their electrical counterparts current, voltage, and resistance? In other words, what does it change in resistance, current, or voltage do to sound waves? Um, Duncan, I'll let you take the first stab at that.
1: Yeah, this is the magic of math. Um, Everything that happens in air is about the pressure of the air. And so air moves back and forth as we speak, as we pound on the drum. There's pressure and there's velocity velocity is is literally just like the wind and so it's moving back and forth the pressure is exactly analogous to voltage and the movement of the air back and forth is exactly analogous to current so the only thing that the microphone does is to convert those those concepts from the air version of the concept to the electric version of the concept they are exactly the same after that you analyze them with the same math mm-hmm. you 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 have non-linearity in air just as you have nonlinearity going through circuits. And uh, so, frequency is frequency. Low frequency versus high frequency, <laughs> they look the same as a pressure waveform as they do as an electrical waveform. Yeah,
0: so I, that makes me so giddy. I mean, I love this stuff. Um, so, let's explore some of those analogies um, because I think Grant kind of presupposes An answer here in his question where he says um, frequency and amplitude and their electrical counterparts, current, voltage and resistance. And, you know, of course he's got the right idea that the electrical system is an analogy to the mechanical system. But where I think we should do some clarifying is frequency and amplitude they don't have counterparts in terms of current, voltage and resistance. Uh, Frequencies and amplitude are properties of air pressure, and their properties of AC voltage. Um, So, in terms of the signal, so kind of the information, that's really encoded in voltage. Well, encoded, we're not doing computing, so I shouldn't say encoded, but that's transduced into voltage. Is that correct? That's true. So, all of the kind of sonic properties of the pressure system in the room are transduced into a corresponding AC voltage. Now, can you say that one more time, the analogy of current to the sound pressure system? Right. The The motion of the air is analogous to the current
1: flow in the wire, not not the voltage. Um, so if you apply a voltage in a circuit, you know that V equals IR and a current will flow. If you apply a pressure in a room, then you know that wind is going to blow. It's going to get away from the place of high pressure. Now, in in a DC circuit, what happens is you get a current flow in the closed loop from the battery all the way back around to the, the ground, and it just keeps flowing. In a room, you turn on a fan. It's made a, a little teeny bit of pressure in front of the fan, and it constantly keeps that wind flow back and forth. With the sound of my voice, mm. where there are components at 400 cycles per second, instead of going out and keeping going out, it goes waving back and forth. So the pressure goes up and down, and the air moves back and forth. There's where, yes, you're right, I I hear it now, his presupposed answer, I want to convert voltage to frequency. There is no such thing. Frequency is the measure of how fast it's going back and forth. And so it doesn't matter whether it's pressure going back and forth or voltage going back and forth or air flow going back and forth, or current flow going back and forth. The frequency is how many times they do it per second, regardless of where it is. Yeah, okay. And likewise, amplitude is how big is it? The pressure is high pressure or lower pressure, which is louder or softer. And then in the electrical domain, it's high voltage versus low voltage, high current versus low current. Um, So amplitude is just the, the label that we put on these things and there is something analogous between the two you said it right it's the information in that uh, 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 that changing pressure or changing uh, um, voltage the information there is what you're representing with frequency or amplitude
0: right yeah that's the word i was looking for representing that this analogy has also really helped me to get a firmer grasp on this concept of ground, uh, which, you know, remains kind of mysterious and elusive to a lot of people. Um, so, if you think about amplitude in the room with, with sound, we're talking about high and low pressure, but you have to ask in relation to what? And of course, in that context, it's obvious. It's in relation to silence or technically we'd say the equilibrium pressure of the room now let's go through the microphone and we're in the electronic the electrical system you have high and low voltage well what's that in reference to that's in reference to zero volts or ground so that that really clarified that to me that ground is kind of you could think of it um as silence in the circuit
1: yeah, you said equilibrium pressure. When you when you don't have sound going on in the room, it's got a normal amount of pressure. Well, in the electrical circuit, if you turn off the power, it goes to the equilibrium voltage, and that happens to be zero volts. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's a good one for you. The pressure in the room is, what, 14 pounds per square inch normal because of everything pushing on us from outer space. Mm-hmm. The difference in voltage between you and me across the United States is probably hundreds of thousands of volts, because there's this constant current flow, but over the huge long distance, uh, we don't sense it between each other, and I make a local ground reference, and there's another concept here. It's always a local reference. What's the pressure in my room? What's the pressure in your room? They're different because of the weather systems. What's the voltage in my room versus the voltage in your room? Well, the long-distance cables underwater from england to the united states when they first put them in in 1900 uh saw this as one of their first problems they they were getting huge current flow and they had to put isolation every couple of miles underwater because this wire was suddenly trying to conduct electricity so that's what ground and pressure references are about it's the
0: local reference That's my mind being blown right now. Okay, that's just—I just just love that. That's phenomenal. I'd never thought of that. that, uh, That—that your zero volts in absolute terms is different from mine, and it's gigavolts between here and Mars. Wow. Um, Okay, and then let's get to the final uh, part, which is resistance or impedance. Um, This—this is another thing that that really made it click for me was when I heard. An acoustician talk about impedance, and he wasn't talking about electronics. He was talking about the variable um, resistance which the air gives to changes in pressure, um, which is exactly analogous to what impedance is in a circuit. So, if you think about um, sound in the air, if you're across a football field, you hear the bass drum a lot better than you hear the cymbals because the impedance of the air is lower at low frequencies than at high frequencies. And it's it's exactly the same concept. Right. Um, so when you study acoustics, you might get
1: into it because you're into music. The concept of acoustics is literally the concept of things moving in the audio frequency range, pretty much, um, through mechanical means. There is acoustics In tapping on a tabletop. When I bang on the tabletop, the speed of sound through that tabletop is actually much faster than the speed of sound through air. Nonetheless, it's a pressure wave going through the tabletop to get from the place I tapped to the far end. Now, that tabletop has a much different impedance than the air around it, and that's what happens when you bang on the tabletop and it turns into motion in the air, you get this impedance matching from the tabletop to the air. And then you hear it. Huh. So it has different conductivity. It's the spring constant. Um, when I compress air, get out your bicycle pump and you can do it. It's compressible. Well, if you try to compress the tabletop, it's going to be very difficult for you. But put it into the civil engineering lab, and they'll compress it. They'll get it to compress by some amount before it breaks. It is compressible. And that compression is like a spring constant. It's much a much tighter spring, and that's one of the reasons that it propagates much more quickly.
0: Oh, interesting. And so I suppose the analogy in electronics is the the conductivity of the wire.
1: The uh the the better difference is how fast the waveform can travel through all of the magnetic juiciness of a humbucking pickup high mm. impedance versus how well it can go through um the direct straight copper wires on the printed circuit board wire gotcha that's where the impedance difference shows up
0: gotcha huh cool well i uh, that's that's great stuff and i i think um, that question really got gets to a, a lot of the the heart of kind of the magic. Um, well, a, at least the fun of doing audio and electronics together is that you really get to apply a lot of the same kind of thinking uh, to both subjects. And um, and we talked about this a little bit when I was talking to Mark Allen Goodman in a previous podcast, where he said, um, you know, for most of your work as an audio engineer your medium isn't sound um or at least a lion's share of it your medium is is alternating current um so that's a a really interesting thing to think about that it's applying the same thinking to both sides um but that understanding these basics of electronics is as much a can be as much a part of your craft as understanding acoustics
1: exactly there's a, a friend of mine who now works, he, he and I work together at uh, DigiDesign, and he's now working for, I think it's Sennheiser. Um, he finally is using his PhD in acoustics, and uh, everything is analogous. There's, there's uh, a fundamental noise in a resistor, there's a fundamental noise in air, any, any fluid. Uh, there's acoustic impedance, there's, uh, all of them have matching concepts one of the toughest ones is impedance whether it's in air or it's in an antenna or it's in a pickup the concept of impedance is one of the toughest and then the good news is just you can work your way through without fundamentally getting it in your guts to make a really
0: great circuit Mm -hmm. oh well you can you can be a do a lot of pretty awesome things with uh vibrations in air without really knowing what's going on too Right, how about that? I know I learned a ton uh and I'm just so thrilled to have Duncan on every time. Uh next time we will continue with those advanced questions I was just referring to. Um we did two hours of answers yesterday, um but I'm just spacing them out because I don't want to exhaust you guys And uh, to be honest, there's only so much editing I can bring myself to do in one day. So stay tuned for that next part very soon. Um, Also, if you did find us through iTunes or a different website, please check out DIYRecordingEquipment.com. That is where I post uh, all my tutorials and projects. Have some kits for sale there, and there's also a directory of every kit and project that I know of that's available out there for DIY recording equipment. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter there. That's where you can sign up for my very non-spammy personal emails from me about what I'm excited about uh, with DIY kits and exclusive offers and, of course, new content and podcasts that are coming out. So, Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us jabber about our passion. I hope that you learned something, and I will talk to you next time. Thanks.